You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. When you think about retirement, do you have a strategy to help your money last as long as you do? That is the biggest fear by far for women. To help make sure you're ready for the future, schedule your complimentary wealth checkup at planefe.com slash hermoney. The central problem is we don't do a very good job of dealing with the risk of unknown lifespans. And if everyone knew how long you would live, you could take whatever resources you had and budget accordingly. But we don't know how long we're gonna live and women tend to live longer than men. So that longevity risk, in the words of an economist, is much worse for women than it is for men. Hi everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. As our regular listeners know, I am one of those people who likes talking about retirement. And that's because every big money decision you make today, every big money decision we all make today is gonna impact our financial future in some way. And my goal is for everyone who is in our community, whether you are listening to the show, whether you're reading our Her Money newsletters, whether you're in one of our coaching programs or in our private Facebook group, my goal is for you to be able to use your money to live the life you want. And that includes your future life, your retirement. And the very best way that we can do that is to save and invest and plan because nobody's doing it for us. Even if you have a financial planner and you know I'm a big fan, it is ultimately up to you to lead this charge. And today, We know there are millions of American retirees who are struggling, who don't have enough saved. We also know that America's retirement system is, to a large extent, pretty out of date. Today, very few people have access to a pension. Social Security's cash reserves are doubtful after the year 2034, according to the Federal Reserve's most recent Economic Well-Being of U.S. Households report, 60%, that's a lot, 60% of Americans are not sure if they're on track for retirement. And the average American has just $65,000 set away for their life in their retirement years. Now, that'll grow to about a quarter million dollars on average by the time they retire. But that's in today's dollars. That's not in tomorrow's dollars. And whatever way you look at it, it is just not enough. It's clear we need a plan. We need a plan not just for our own retirements. We need a plan for our country because we all deserve to feel financially secure in the next chapter of our lives. That's what we're talking about today. And we're talking about it with economist Ben Harris. Ben recently served as the Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy and the Chief Economist with the U.S. Treasury Department. He was also a senior advisor to the 2020 Biden campaign and the Chief Economist and Economic Advisor to Biden while he was vice president. He recently co-authored a book, with economist Martin Bailey called The Retirement Challenge, What's Wrong with America's System and a Sensible Way to Fix It. Ben, so great to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. 
So you took a, a real deep dive into research with your book, and I'd love to just start with that question of when we look at how Americans are trying to get from here to retirement, what is wrong with the system and what's wrong with the system for women? Great. And so, you know, implicit in that question is also what's right with the system. And I think that there's some things that work really well in the system and some things that are failures and some things that are particular failures for women. So what's right with the system? Well, the first thing that's right with the system is it allows us to accumulate enormous sums of money. So at the end of 2022, if you look across different retirement accounts, Americans had roughly $33 trillion in these various accounts. That was a roughly a doubling from 2010. So we have a lot of money stocked away for retirement. The second thing that's good about the system is that it's incredibly flexible. And so American families are just so different. I mean, a lot of people want to work until they're older. They see value in it. Some people want to retire as quickly as they can. Marital situations are different. People have different preferences. People have different expectations for how long they'll live. Some want to leave money to kids. Some don't. So it's a really flexible system, which is a good thing. The third thing that's good about our system is that we put a lot of support through public programs. So Social Security, Medicare, to a certain extent, Medicaid. I mean, as a country, we've kind of decided, and you can look at our budget as proof, as a country, we've decided that retirement is really important and we're going to put incredible resources towards it. So that's what's right with the system. What's wrong with the system? So one thing that's wrong with the system is it simply just fails certain people. And as a kind of a moral judgment, uh, and economists don't tend to make moral judgments, but I think that someone <laughs> who, who has worked their whole life and made the right decisions should not be living in poverty when they're older. And old age poverty is an acute problem for women. It's particularly acute for women who are not married. And it's really acute for women who are not married and a person of color. So we see really high poverty rates, particularly, for example, for Hispanic women who are single when they're older. And, and no one should be, should be old and living in poverty and struggling. And so, you know, a big problem with the retirement system, at the beginning you said that it was, um, I forgot the word you used, but it was, it was out of date. And I think that's exactly right. And so, you know, what we've had is kind of this accidental system which arose not on purpose, but, and, and what I'm talking about are 401ks. And it was not like policymakers ever sat down and said, yeah, we want a system of 401ks. It was a small part of the tax code that became really popular over time. Companies shifted away from traditional pensions towards 401ks in part because they didn't want to take on the risk. And now we kind of have this accidental system where a lot of people have 401ks, some people have money in 401ks, but we don't have great mechanisms for taking all of this wealth, for taking that $34 trillion in wealth and turning it into security in older ages. So maybe you're a person who's been a middle income worker for your whole life. You've got half a million dollars stocked away. Maybe you don't have a, a mortgage. And on paper, you've got a lot of wealth, right? You've got half a million dollars in your 401k. Maybe you live in a half a million dollar house. But we don't have great mechanisms for turning all of that wealth 
into security. And that's a real fundamental problem with our system. Now, women in particular have longer life expectancies than men. And I think the central problem, there are a few, but one of the central problems to our current system is we don't do a very good job of dealing with the risk of unknown lifespans. And if everyone knew how long you would live, you could take whatever resources you had and budget accordingly. But we don't know how long we're going to live. And women tend to live longer than men. So that longevity risk, in the words of an economist, is much worse for women than it is for men. Yeah, it's scary. And it's interesting hearing you talk through the development of the 401k system because I feel like I've had a ringside seat, right? I started working at Forbes magazine as a reporter in the early 90s. 401ks were really just coming into their own. I think that they are responsible for the fact that so many people are interested in their money now because we have a stake in the game that we didn't really have when there were pensions. I mean, we just expected to receive a check, and now we have all this responsibility to amass a big chunk of money while we're working to make it last. And there are a large number of people, and I I think in particular the people that you mentioned, the women, the women of color, people of color in general who don't have access to a 401k. And without that ability to make an automatic contribution out of your paycheck into some retirement account, whether it's an IRA or a SEP or some other account, the chances that you'll do it are a lot less likely. One of the things that you wrote in your book was that if businesses, families, and policy makers do their part, everyone, current retirees and future generations, can enjoy a more secure and prosperous retirement. That's a line right out of your book. So I'm sure there are many, many, many layers to that. But what is our part? Like, what do we have to do? to make it happen for us, but also to make it happen for society? So there's a lot of things that policymakers can do. I know that was your question. We have to get that later. But policy is really not set up well to help all people accumulate savings. And and so we could spend a lot of time talking about what policymakers could do. But just to give one example, when we think about the incentives for saving in a 401k, the tax-based incentives are massive. They're at least $250 billion a year in foregone tax revenue. So the tax code affords these enormous benefits to people. But rather than doing it in a simple way or in an equitable way where, you know, let's say, Gene, you put $1,000 in uh, an account and get $250 in tax breaks deposited into account. It's based on this very complicated formula that depends on what your tax rate is when you're saving and how long you're saving for and what your tax rate is when you take it out. And what we tend to see is because upper income people have higher tax rates and during their working years, they tend to get more of the benefit. And if you're a middle income worker, who maybe pays a lot in payroll taxes, but not a lot in income taxes, this $250 billion in annual tax breaks isn't worth a lot. And so one thing that policymakers can do is make the retirement saving incentives more equitable. We also talk about employers 
And employers play a real role in this because I think employers have become, whether they like it or not, one of the vehicles through which we save. Employers, I think, in large part, pretty large employers have accepted this responsibility. They didn't have to. They did. They use it as a recruitment tool in part. But they also play a role as a credible source of advice. And so within your 401k, you have a series of different retirement options. And, and you know, in my experience, and, and I've been in retirement for uh, it's been an area of focus for for some time now that employers really do want to, you know, generally want to do right by their employees, want to give them credible advice. They don't want to be on the hook. Employers don't want to be on the hook for the legal consequences of potentially making the wrong decision. But if they can help their their workers save, they would like to. And so there's a lot that employers can do. And, and the first is, as you mentioned, the first thing that employers can do is put people automatically on a path towards sound saving. Having accounts where you're automatically withdrawn. I mean, economists have been thinking about ways to get people to save for a long time. And then we sort of discovered, oh, it's really hard for people to overcome this inertia, this decision, save or not save. And if you automatically put people on the, the path to good saving, they tend to do it by leaps and bounds more than if you ask them to actively save. And the same thing is true of investment decisions. So putting people in sound investments, you know, low cost index funds and that type of thing. So employers, because they're so credible and because they're this central nexus for saving can also play a big role, but it's also on households. It's on households to do a few different things. I mean, first off, if you're a middle income person or, or higher, I mean, you really should take advantage of saving incentives that the government or your employer offers. I mean, if you're getting any sort of match and you're leaving that on the table, that's a big mistake. But people can also avoid some of the big problems that are pitfalls in retirement. And just to give you one example, so when I was in the Obama administration towards the end, we had something called the fiduciary rule, and it eventually didn't survive a challenge in court. But what the fiduciary rule did is it said that advisors needed to take better account of the best interests of their clients in certain circumstances. And the reason why the Obama administration and the Department of Labor at the time spent so much time on this rule was because you would see all these instances of people who would save their whole lives, get to retirement, have to make a decision about what they were doing with their saving, and then ultimately talk to uh, an advisor who put them in a, in a bad investment that would really cost this person years of saving. And so people need to be vigilant against bad decisions. When it comes to investing, economists have this mantra, which is you know diversification, low rates. But I think the other thing that people can do, and I don't see a lot of people doing this, is thinking about the retirement in terms of income not just wealth, and kind of stress testing their retirement saying, look, there's a decent chance I'm going to live into my mid-90s. In fact, if you're a 65-year-old woman, you have a 13% chance of living at least three more decades. And so stress testing some of your own longevity, I think, is really important. You know, we talk about that a lot on this show and whether there is any sort of a magic number that you should be trying to save for your retirement. And we tend to rely on, I tend to cite these benchmarks that were developed by Fidelity Investments that say that by the time you're 30, you should have one times your salary put away for retirement. By the time you're 43 times, at 56 times, at 68 times, and by the time you retire, 10 times. And for people who earn between $50,000 and $300,000, these benchmarks were set up so that 
your savings, if you achieved these numbers, would, when combined with Social Security, basically produce about 80% of your income and it would last for 30 years, right? So cover you for that nut. But those numbers don't exist for income. I don't have income benchmarks. And so I agree with you. I think if people would start to think about how much income they might need in retirement, maybe it would be easier to save for those numbers. But we have no idea. And especially this year with inflation out of control, we really don't have any idea. And I'll just, I mean, my husband and I, we went to the financial advisor, which we do every year, And um, I get an A for that. We went to the financial advisor and we were talking about how much money we would be able to pull from our portfolio each year in retirement. My husband is 66, so he's a little bit older than me. And the advisor sent us home with homework to track our spending now, which I hadn't done in a while, right? I'm like the queen of tracking your spending and I hadn't done it in a while. And so I wasn't sure we were gonna meet his numbers. And if I don't know the answer to this question, I don't know how people in general are supposed to know the answer. Exactly. I mean, you know more about finance than anyone. And not really. (laughs) Two points. The first is this is so complicated. I mean, for this book, I had to write a chapter on just how annuities work And it took me, I mean, you know, I'm I'm a PhD economist. I should be able to describe how annuities work. It was just so complicated. And that's just one tiny little sliver of this whole system. I, I sometimes give an example about barriers to saving. And I think that sometimes there's this notion that people don't save because they're sort of weak willed and they can't resist temptation and they just really like Starbucks. And maybe that's true for some people, but it's also just so daunting. And an anecdote that I give was when I was at the Brookings Institution, I had a bunch of research assistants, and these are were young people who are going to go on to get PhDs at Ivy League schools. I mean, just the smartest people you'll ever meet. And one day they all came to my office. They looked a little sheepish and they said, Ben, we, we want to set up a retirement account. We don't know how. I mean, and these people can run circles around anyone when it comes to math. They understand the value of compound interest. They didn't know how to physically go onto their computer and set up an account with Ameritrade or, or whoever. And that was just the start. That was just opening up an account. So one big part of the problem is that it's just so complicated. The second big problem, and just hammering home this theme, it's a major theme of our book, and I think it's a real problem with the American retirement system, is again, just this longevity risk. So let's say everyone just sort of retired at age 65. The current paradigm is save like crazy during your working years, and then when you get to age 65 or whenever you retire, take stock of your assets and hope you don't live too long. That's a terrible paradigm. And so what people do is they actually oversave and they're not being, they're not being irrational. And, and you hear this a lot. I mean, for all of the talk about undersavers, again, we've got $34 trillion as a country stocked away to save. We've, we've got a lot of money as a country. There are a lot of people who are terrified of being 90, 95, and, and poor, and they're not crazy. So what do you do? You just hold on to all these assets. And I know probably more people who have gone to retirement advisors like you do, but when they're in retirement and their advisors say, you got to spend more, like enjoy your retirement. You spent your whole life working, but people have this fear, this rational fear of being in their late nineties or even older without assets. And so 
you know, the way I kind of describe it is like having a friend show up at your house and say, look, okay, we're going camping. And you ask, okay, well, for how long? And they say, well, between one day and three months, pack accordingly. And so you have to like plan for the three-month trip. But even though on average, you know, people don't tend to live those extra three or four decades, but they've got to plan for it. So there's got to be a better system for taking all that wealth and turning it into income. So in the book, you write about two products that have not had a lot of fans. In fact, you know, I spent a good portion of my career at personal finance magazines where these two products, annuities and reverse mortgages, were not written about in the most favorable terms. Now, that tide has really turned in the past couple of years. We're going to dig into what you need to know about both annuities and reverse mortgages and how they can be helpful in retirement in just a sec. But we're going to take a quick break first. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Whether your retirement is a few decades away or right around the corner, you need a strategy to help make sure you have enough saved and invested to do and see and experience what you want most. It's time to make sure your money is working for you. It's been more than a year now that I've been working with the planners from Edelman Financial Engines as the host of the Everyday Wealth Podcast. I am a fan of their holistic approach, the fact that They don't just look at your investments, but at your whole life. You can request a complimentary wealth checkup at planefe.com slash hermoney. We are back with economist Ben Harris, author of The Retirement Challenge. So I say annuities. I say reverse mortgages. People's eyes start to roll back in their heads because for a long time, these products were really thought to be the devil. And what we know now is that they're not. What we also know, and what I found really interesting in getting to know you and some of the other economists through the work with the Alliance for Lifetime Income, is economists love these things. So why do economists love them? And you can take them one by one. And what are ordinary people missing? So, yeah, annuities are exactly right. Annuities are referred to as the product that economists love and and everyone else hates. And economists have started to, in the past decade or so, start to distinguish between annuities, immediate annuities. So think of an annuity that you buy at age 65 that begins paying out right away. And a deferred annuity or a longevity annuity or a QLAC. We're going to have to take a step back and explain what's an annuity. Okay, so that's a very simple, straightforward question, but sometimes annuity is not even an annuity. Let me explain. So in the kind of standard, classic sense, the way economists think about annuity, it would be someone taking a lump sum of money and giving it to a life insurance company in exchange for a stream of payments for the rest of your life. So maybe someone has $100,000, they turn age 65, They give it to a life insurance company and they get like $1,000 a month for the rest of their life. And so you're taking, when I talk about taking wealth, that $100,000, and turning it into income, that's what we're talking about. And if you live longer than you think, then you kind of make out probably better than the life insurance company expected. And if you live less, then you get less than you expected. But just like other types of insurance, and it really is an insurance product, some people get a bigger payout, others get a smaller payout. And it's hard annuity is just taking a big lump sum of money and turning it into a stream of payments. 
Now, the reason why this is so confusing is because many annuities, if not most annuities, are actually more like 401ks where they're investment products, they carry a value. You probably will never actually get that stream of payments. These are often referred to as variable annuities. And it's really confusing. These products are generally only suitable for very high income people for tax reasons. So economists think about annuities more like the type I described, where you're trading that lump sum in for, for money. There's also now a product, and again, no one buys these. I mean, almost no one bought them 10 years ago, and now like no one buys them. But these are deferred annuities. So this would be someone uh, at age 65 taking that $100,000 and giving it to a life insurance company and say, look, I don't want any payments for the next 10 or 15 years, but when I turn age 75 or I turn age 80, then I went that want the payments to start. I like that idea, quite frankly. I mean, because I've looked at spending. I've looked at how we spend over the course of our lives. And so I know spending climbs into your 50s, right? You got kids, they're going to college, they cost a lot of money. Then it starts to dip, right? And it dips as we go into retirement. And it really kicks back up again toward the end of life because all those unpredictable healthcare expenditures kick in. So this idea makes a lot of sense to me, but people don't do it because they don't like to hand over a big chunk of money. They like to keep their money with themselves. A lot of people don't trust government, so they don't believe that their social security is going to be there, which again is something we can talk about. But they also don't trust big institutions and they worry they might fail. Now, annuities have a really strong track record. I, I, I'm not aware of any annuity payments, not variable annuities, but the income annuities that we talked about that haven't been paid. So even through the great financial crisis of 15 years ago, life insurance companies are heavily regulated. They make all of these payments on time. But there's an important distinction, which is there is kind of a strategy that people can use is rather than taking all of their money that they've saved, just taking a small fraction and putting it into that deferred annuity. And you can get the same amount of money for a lot less because you're not collecting it for those 10 or 15 years. And if you do collect it, you'll collect it for a shorter period of time. So, you know, the example we sort of talked about at the beginning where you've got someone who has a half a million dollars in a 401k and maybe half a million dollars in their house, you know, there've been simulations in economic papers and it says, look, don't take your whole half a million dollars and turn it over to a life insurance company. Take like an eighth of it, take 50,000, 10%, and then you're going to know you're going to have a big chunk of money coming in every month when you turn 75. And now your problem becomes, how do I take $450,000, right? You took $50,000, you put in your annuity. How do I make $450,000 last until I turn age 75 rather than how do I make half a million dollars last until whenever? It could be older than 100. And the first problem is a much easier one to digest where you just need to get yourself to another 10 or 15 years out till your annuity kicks in rather than trying to guess at how long you might live. Yeah, makes a lot of sense to me. Reverse mortgages, some of our listeners are not even close to the age where this is a you know an issue for them. You can't get a reverse mortgage until you hit age 62. You're not old enough and you probably shouldn't get one until you're much older than that because the payoffs will be too low. But you like the idea of these as well. And I know a reverse mortgage, which is basically where the bank buys the house back from you in one way or another, don't have a lot of fans, but you like them in some cases. In some cases, and that's a really important point. So 
Uh, reverse mortgages have a really ugly history and people are right to kind of squint. I mean, they're often sold late at night. They were sold by unscrupulous companies. Um, I think they've had a better track record. They're heavily regulated by the government now. The reason why my co-author and I liked reverse mortgages for some people is there are a lot of people, maybe more than you would think, who enter retirement years with social security and a house and not much else. It's a big share of people. They've maybe paid off their house or paid off most of their house. And what do you say to someone who's 65? They don't want to work anymore. They want to stay in their house. Maybe they have a $400,000 house that they've paid off, but they've got $20,000 in their, in their 401k. You know, what do you say to that person? And the answer for some people is a reverse mortgage. Reverse mortgages are really complicated. The heart of a reverse mortgage is you basically use your house like a credit card. And so, again, maybe you have a $400,000 house and you, you go to the bank and you say, look, I will agree that when I leave my house, whether by choice or by death, that I will pay off whatever loan I've accrued. And the bank says, okay, well, we'll give you $100,000, let's say, against your house. Interest is going to start running as soon as you take out that lump sum. But when you leave the house or when you die, you know, you sell the house and then you give us the proceeds, that $100,000 plus interest. There is one hidden benefit to reverse mortgages, which is that, and this is a little complex, but they are a, they're a kind of a hedge or they're, they're a protection against falling housing prices. And so if you have a $400,000 house and you take out like that, you know, $100,000, $150,000 lump sum, and then we go through something like we went through in 2008, and that house loses 50% of its value, you're not on the hook for the value of, of your loan. That's, and so some people, you know, for in really like true economist ways where we think about all the different angles and, and possible risk, like it as sort of a, a protection against falling home prices. But at the heart of it, it's just a really good product for that subset of people who have a lot of money in their home and, and not much else. As we start to wrap up here, I, you talk about in the book, you know, retirement is a big unknown and it can be a scary unknown. What is your best advice for women in general going forward? How do you talk to your sister? How do you talk to your wife? How do you talk to your mom, your daughters? What do you think the most important things for us to know are? So the first is, and I asked a labor economist this, I have three daughters. And I said, you know, what, what's your advice as a labor economist for ways that they could have a prosperous life? And, and the labor economist, she told me, she said, look, uh, have the major in STEM and marry a supportive spouse, which I thought was just, you know, that's, I guess, good advice for your working years. But as you get older, I think that one thing that's important is maintaining sort of flexibility and options. And so, you know, it is good to have some of your money set aside in a house and money sort of in diversified investments, but also in terms of uh, your own choice to work or not. So I'm a big fan of phased retirement for some people. I mean, look, if you really hate working and you can do it, then just then you obviously retire at age 65. But for a lot of people, it might make sense to work part time or quarter time. There are a lot of benefits to that. You can, you know, intellectually, you're still stimulating your mind. You're getting some social outlets if you're working with other people. And then, of course, you're getting that extra income. So it's good to stay flexible there. I think it's really important to have good advice, and people can get that from different places. But just equally as important is avo avoiding bad advice. 
And so a lot of the tragic cases in retirement came from when people just trusted the wrong person, whether it was a family member who looked to take advantage of them or maybe a particular advisor who wasn't keeping them in their best interest. So I think it's really important to avoid the bad advice. And then lastly, I think it's just kind of like you talked about, you, you go to the advisor every year and to kind of stress test your life. I think it's important to say, look, what would happen if I live into my late 90s? But at the same time, a lot of people don't do this. There's also kind of the tragedy of oversaving and like the foregone vacation or birthday party for your kids. And so once you start thinking about ways you can protect against longevity that you might not expect, I think people can probably start enjoying their retirements a bit more. We will leave it there. Ben Harris, where can we find you these days? Where can we find out more about the book and about you? Well, so the book, you know, all places that sell books, uh, The Retirement Challenge, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, the like. For me, I'm taking a break after, uh, you know, several years with the Biden administration, the campaign, and we'll likely be back in academia before too long. Before we dive into our mailbag, a quick word from our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we are back for Mailbag. My daughter, Julia Chatsky, is joining us for this segment. Hey, Jules. Hello. Back again. I have to say that I really think that economists like Ben, and I'm an unabashed fan, who have the ability to make this topic easy to understand, I think are are few and far between. I mean, you know the story about how I got a C in economics in college, right? Maybe. Maybe you want to tell you it to all of your listeners? <laughs> it was the first C I ever got in my whole life. I was a very good student in high school. And then I went to college at the University of Pennsylvania where— Nice brag. Well, it was a nice brag. But I said that because I went into the College of Arts and Sciences. Penn had the Wharton School. And if you thought that you might want to transfer into the Wharton School, which, by the way, everybody had on their list at that point, you had to take econ. And you had to take it freshman year. And it was really competitive. And I just didn't understand it. And I mean, I was just having to go home and tell grandmom and grandpa that I got a C they were actually very cool about it. My grandma said, it's not my C, it's your C, you deal with it. So I, I thought that was something, but I didn't really gain an understanding of economics until I started doing reporting on this topic and talking to people like Ben later in life. And so I guess my point to you and everybody listening is it's not your fault. Like if somebody is trying to explain something to you in mumbo jumbo, look for somebody who explains it in English because those people are out there. Totally. And that's why they're listening, right? Yeah. Well, that's what we try to do. I I know that sometimes, as you tell me, I have 12 heads, but I do my best and you call me out when I don't explain it particularly well. I'm just here for the listeners. Just doing my job. (laughs) All right. First question, Julia. Our first question today comes to us from Ashton. She writes, Hello, 
How much would you recommend having on hand in case your marriage wasn't working out and a decision was made to separate or divorce? For context, we have one kid and I work for a paycheck that comes from an external employer. That's my way of saying that I'm not a stay-at-home mom. I'm not currently contemplating divorce, but things got rocky a few years ago, and my mental and emotional health and health of my relationship is vastly improved if I can see it as a choice and not as if I'm stuck. I feel like, worst case scenario, I'm sitting on some money that is an extra emergency fund that could be a treat later on in life, or I could bequeath it to my kid. What dollar amount would you recommend? That's a hard one. I'm curious how you take this one. Well, because your father and I got divorced, and so there's some history there. First of all, Ashton, here's the thing that I'm taking from your letter. I think you know yourself really well. I think that there are a lot of people out there who may want some financial autonomy in their relationship, may feel like they want to have some money in their own name and don't know how to speak to that and don't know how to ask for it and don't know how to set it up. And my feeling has always been that if you want autonomy, you should have autonomy, male or female. I feel like anybody who feels like they want money, that they have the ability to do with as they please, should find a way to set that up in their relationship. And so I think it's good that you're thinking about doing this. There's a difference, though, between autonomy and secrecy. And when you set up a a separate account and you start funneling money into that account and you don't tell your spouse, you're sort of going down the road of what we call for better or for worse financial infidelity. And then I think you have to start to ask yourself the question, what happens if my spouse finds out about this money? And so I fully support your choice to do this, to set up an account that is yours. But I would look for a way to tell your spouse that this is going on. I would suggest saying to your spouse, if you don't have yours, mine, and ours accounts right now, I would suggest saying, I'm feeling like I'd like a little bit of money that I can do with as I please. I think you should have the same, by the way. And so I'm going to set up a separate savings account. I think you should set up a separate savings account. We should come up with a sum of money that we can each put into our separate savings accounts and know, you know, if this is something where I want to go out and have a night with my girlfriends and I want to use this and I don't want to have to answer for it, I can do that. And if you want to go out and take a trip with your guys or buy something that is not on my list, you can do the same thing. Your question about an amount of money that you park in this account, I think is an interesting one. I wouldn't do it randomly. I would think about, okay, if I were to leave this marriage, if this marriage were to end, how much money would I need in order to do the things on my list? Rent an apartment, buy a second car, support myself for several months. What is that sum of money that would make you feel confident that you wouldn't be strapped? Now, you should know 
these are all going to be marital assets. The money in his account, the money in your account, the money in your joint account. In the vast majority of cases, this is all going to be our money for the purpose of getting to a separation. And if you got to the point where you did want to separate or divorce, you could take money out of your joint account and you could use it to do those very things. But I hear what you're saying about feeling safe. I want you to feel safe. I want you to feel comfortable in this relationship. And so the next thing that I'm going to suggest is not my way of saying you should plan for a divorce. It's just my way of saying you should have all of the information. And that's, if you haven't talked to a lawyer, you should talk to a lawyer. You don't need to hire a lawyer. You don't need to retain a lawyer. You just need to have a preliminary conversation with a lawyer about the what-ifs so that you're not struggling feeling that you don't know the answers to these questions. And I hope that setting yourself up with this sort of plan B that you don't necessarily plan on activating actually gives you the confidence to stay in this relationship and go with it long-term. But that's how I would handle it. What do you think? It's a triggering question, this one. I know. I know. I mean, as any child who has been through divorce, I'm sure it is. So let's move on and talk about our next question. It comes from Chloe. What does she have to say? Good leeway, mom. Hi, Jean. Thanks so much for all your wisdom. I feel so much more prepared to engage in our family financial decisions thanks to your show. That's nice, Chloe. My husband, 40, and I, 32, are planning to look into moving from our starter home to a forever home next year as we also plan to grow our family from one to two. I would love to be able to buy any time from around May 2024 onward. I would love a home that has more space and is in a great school district, but would love help figuring out our max and ideal price range. We plan on buying a new home by putting down a relatively small down payment, around 10%, and then selling our current home and using the proceeds to recast the new home's mortgage. We estimate we will make around $291,000 in the sale. Here are our current numbers. Annual gross household income, $291,000. Monthly take-home household income, after taxes, retirement, HSA, FSA deductions, $14,350. We're saving 15% of gross income for retirement in various forms and saving $350 a month in a 529. Our average monthly expenses without mortgage but including all other bills is around $5,500. My estimation is that $800,000 should be our max budget. I want to ensure we don't live beyond our means and gives ourselves flexibility for saving for college and travel. What do you think of this plan? Do you think aiming to have $80,000 for an initial down payment is safe? Lastly, where do you think we should save this down payment if we hope to purchase in approximately one year? We're generally very risk tolerant and largely invest in index funds, but I think given our timeline, we should be putting this money away in something safer, like a high yield saving at 4.85% or a six-month CD at 5%. My husband prefers to stay in the stock market, but I think it's too risky. What do you advise? Thanks so much for all of your help. 
You're very welcome. Chloe, this sounds really exciting, actually. So exciting. I love real estate. I love the idea of increasing the size of your family. I love the idea of buying another home. Couple of things. Why are you waiting to sell your home until you buy the next home? That doesn't make so much sense to me. When you put a home on the market, I think you have to understand that it could take some time to get out of it. And why strap yourself to having two mortgage payments when you don't actually need to do that? I would think about selling your home before you buy the new home. I would also take yourself to a mortgage lender or two and get yourself Um, pre-approved and pre-qualified. They will tell you about how much they will lend you. 800,000 sounds about right to me, but they'll give you a better sense of that. And you're going to want to also factor in the other costs of living in that new house, what it's going to cost for utilities, what it's going to cost for taxes, all of those things. But based on that 800,000 number, I do think that aiming to have 80000 for an initial down payment, not including any closing costs, sounds pretty good to me. As far as where the money goes, I'm with you. I'm not with your husband. I believe it should be in a high-yield savings account. We've seen how volatile the stock market has been in recent years, and although it could go up, it could also go down. And a lot of people, particularly with all the goings-on in Washington, have been talking about the fact that the stock market could take a significant hit. That's not something that you want to do with money that you want to use within a year or two. It is only for money that you're not going to need to use within the next three years or less. It's for long-term funds. So your house money goes in a high-yield savings account. I wouldn't even put it in a CD because what if you are looking at open houses, which is something that I do for sport, right? What if you're reading the real estate listings, you're indulging in a little real estate porn, and you go, oh my God, there's the house, and you've got your money locked up in a CD. It's not worth the extra few basis points just for a little bit more return. I'd keep your options flexible. Let us know what happens. Congratulations on all of these changes. Sounds really, really exciting. And if you all have any other money-related questions, we would love to hear from you. Just send them our way by emailing us at mailbag at hermoney.com. Thank you, Jules. Thank you. Bye, everyone. And we're going to take a quick break. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. At a time when change is constant, and we are pulled in far too many directions. We need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. 
Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. Hey there, listeners. It's Nima Gobier. I'm the co-host of MindShift, the podcast where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I don't teach math. I don't teach reading. I teach people. You'll hear from teachers, parents, researchers, and students as we uncover innovative approaches in and out of the classroom. It holds a lot about how we want students and young people to move through the world, how we want to set them up for success. Find MindShift wherever you get your podcasts. We are back with your money tip of the week. Remote work has become a staple of many people's work lives these days, including at her money, but it comes with its own set of challenges, including communication. If you're working remotely and struggling to connect with your colleagues, we got a few tips for you. If you are a senior leader at your company, advocate for in-person team building at least once or twice a year. If you're a manager, plan for Zoom coffee breaks once or twice a week to encourage non-work-related conversations. If you're an entry-level employee, make an effort to be friendly and engaging with your coworkers, even over email and Slack. No matter what your position is, the most important thing to keep in mind is that when you're working remotely, connecting with your colleagues requires a conscious effort. For more tips on navigating all the complexities of work, visit us at hermoney.com. Thanks for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks so much to Ben Harris for walking us through all the challenges of retirement and how to get on our way. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. This show is produced by CDM Sound Studios and Chelsea Zhu. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon. <laughs>